In Kentucky and Ohio, he sustained the character of an unrelenting barbarian. His name was associated with everything that was cruel and fiend-like. To the women and children particularly, nothing was more terrifying than the name Simon Gertie. History of Wetzel County, West Virginia, John C. McEldowney, Jr., 1901. Welcome, compadres, to part three of our exploration of the life of Simon Gertie, the most notorious renegade in American frontier history. There's an obvious comparison between Simon Gertie's defection to the British in 1778 and Benedict Arnold's treason in 1780. There are some similarities between the turncoats, but I think some significant differences too. Both men felt with some justification that their contributions to the Patriot cause were underappreciated. But Arnold's disillusionment was, was purely personal, where Gertie seems to have suffered a, a genuine moral injury in his recognition that the Americans would never treat the native peoples justly. And where Arnold's treason came with the prospect of a big payday, Gertie's defection carried no prospect of reward at all, and in fact, no prospect that he'd even be accepted by the British. The Seneca, his adoptive people, remained deeply skeptical of him and, and impeded his journey to the British in Detroit when Gertie fled from Fort Pitt with Alexander McKee. The Senecas continued to, to think that he was an American spy, and British Governor Henry Hamilton had his suspicions too, but after many interviews with Gertie and under the influence of Alexander McKee, Hamilton decided that Gertie was the real deal and assigned him a role in the Indian Department. And Hamilton formally presented Gertie to a conference of the tribes in Detroit in June of 1778. Gertie's biographer, Philip W. Hoffman, writes, in mid-June, representatives of the Great Lakes tribes assembled at Detroit to take part in councils with Governor Hamilton and other British authorities. Aware of Gertie's special problem with the Senecas, Hamilton took care to help him. On the second day of the councils, the governor formally presented Gertie to the assembly, declared him an interpreter who had recently escaped from the Virginians. Quote, someone who had put himself under the protection of his majesty after having given satisfactory assurances of his fidelity, end quote. While Gertie was being introduced to the Indians at Detroit, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, his former countrymen were declaring him a traitor and were placing an $800 bounty on his head. A proclamation dated 15 June 1778 declared that Alexander McKee, Simon and James Gertie, and Matthew Elliott had knowingly and willingly aided and assisted the enemies of the state and of the United States of America. And therefore, the Supreme Executive Council did charge and require McKee, Simon and James Gertie, and Elliot to render themselves to some or one of the justices of the Supreme Court before August 3rd to face trial for treason. So Simon knew that he had, had cut all ties with the Americans at this point. And as indicated in that proclamation, Gertie's brother James, who had been living among the Shawnee and had a Shawnee wife, joined him. And uh, pretty soon, George Gertie would desert from an American gunboat on the Mississippi River and trek from the Mississippi to Detroit to reunite with his brothers. So then the, uh, quote, Injun Gerties were now in the British service working with the Indians to push back the American frontier. 
And the war to do that was already underway. Through 1777, the Shawnee, along with some Mingo and Wyandotte allies, had been raiding into Kentucky and what is now West Virginia. The Crown had originally hesitated to fully commit to Indian warfare on the frontiers, having been the recipients of it in the French and Indian War. But by 1778, the British were all in, and they sent their agents out amongst the tribes. The Gerties' role would be familiar to modern Green Berets and or CIA paramilitaries. They were to serve as military advisors and facilitators, rallying and supplying the native warriors to stay constantly in the field and raiding and harassing the Americans. Contrary to the assumptions of the Americans who in you know, a sort of racially based uh, point of view, uh, assumed that the Indians were being led by these white renegades, the Gerties were not commanding Indian forces. The Indians didn't need instruction in wilderness warfare. They were masters of the art, and they had their own highly capable leaders. But the Gerties could and did aid them in building alliances and coalitions amongst the, the various tribes and villages, and the agents of the British Indian Department were also under orders to moderate the behavior of the warriors. The British were kind of still kind of squeamish about unleashing the Indians on um, American frontier settlers who they hoped to one day reconcile with. The British did pay a scalp Bounty, which earned Governor Hamilton the, the nickname of the hair buyer. But it's a little more complicated than, than just that. Um, they paid much better for prisoners to encourage the taking of prisoners. And field operatives were supposed to encourage the warriors to and the, the war parties to take prisoners and advocate for the good treatment of those prisoners. And Simon Gurdy, in particular, took that aspect of, of the mission to heart, which we'll, we'll see as things develop. The Gurdys were also supposed to keep the strategic goals of the British and their Indian allies in sync, which wasn't always possible. And so let's, uh, let's jump the timeline for a minute to examine one example of that. In 1780, the British Colonel Henry Byrd led an expedition down into Kentucky with a mixed force, uh, mixed force of British regular troops and rangers and Indian warriors, uh, about a thousand of them, which was a large force for this theater of war. The expedition also dragged along some artillery which hadn't been seen on the western frontier to date. And the Gertie brothers accompanied this expedition, particularly uh, acting primarily as, as interpreters. Byrd's expedition was supposed to be a part of a comprehensive British campaign to destroy forts in Kentucky and in the Illinois country along the Mississippi River. Byrd's main target was Fort Nelson at present-day Louisville, which was commanded at the time by the Americans' most effective leader, Colonel George Rogers Clark. The Indians were intimidated by Clark's fighting reputation, and, and they didn't want to attack Fort Nelson. So instead, they picked off two small forts, Ruddles Station and Martin's Station, instead. And faced with a cannon, the Ruddles surrendered immediately. 
and the British offered protection to the inhabitants. But the Indians' blood was up, and they ignored the, the surrender terms and rushed into the station and killed about 20 settlers. Bird later wrote, quote, They rushed in, tore the poor children from their mother's breasts, killed and wounded many. So Bird was horrified and, and enraged, and he berated his allies, who did not take it very well. And at Martin's station, they refrained refrain from doing any indiscriminate killing, but they were just done with the campaign. They'd taken 400 prisoners and a huge amount of plunder, and from the Indians' perspective, they had done very well in this campaign. They were ready to head home. And Byrd, for his part, didn't really want to have anything more to do with his allies. So from a strategic perspective, though, a campaign that, that could have utterly devastated the Kentucky settlements, I mean, with, with artillery, they could have taken each settlement in Kentucky one by one. But instead, they merely provoked the Americans, who retaliated with a pretty successful raid on the Shawnee villages in the Ohio interior just a, a few weeks later, led by George Rogers Clark. So British officials considered the campaign a, a disappointing failure. And uh, that's an example of the tricky kind of coalition warfare that Simon Gurdy was tasked to navigate. So let's return back to 1778. So Gertie has defected to the British. He's been accepted by the British and by the, uh, the British native allies, including even the Seneca, who have, who have finally recognized that, that he was not, in fact, an American spy. And so Gertie was assigned to work with the Mingo and the Wyandotte in particular, while his brother James would, would work with the Shawnee, and, uh, and George Gertie, when he came on board, would, would renew his old association with the Delaware. So by the fall of 1778, Simon was operational, going out on a large and successful raid in western Pennsylvania in September of that year. The loadout for these kinds of raids was, was pretty minimal. The war parties moved out on foot wearing moccasins and leggings of deerskin, a breech clout, and usually a long linen shirt, or sometimes no, no shirt, but a long linen shirt that reached about down to the, to the mid-thigh, and perhaps with a Lindsay Woolsey hunting frock over it. Um, the American frontiersmen and the Indians dressed very similarly. And uh, they would wear a belt or a, a sash around the hunting frock or the shirt that would support a tomahawk and a, a knife. Usually referred to as a scalping knife, but it was a, a utility knife. Uh, Gertie also habitually carried a brace of flintlock pistols tucked in his sash. Uh, that was, uh, obviously it had practical benefit in, in combat, but it was also a a symbol of rank and authority. The primary weapon for the warriors on these, in these war parties was probably either a smoothbore musket supplied by the British or a long rifle. Many of the Indians would probably have also um, carried, not in addition to, but, but they might have carried in, instead of a, a musket or rifle, a, a trade musket, also a smoothbore, but lighter and smaller bore than the than the military Brown Bess musket, which was 75 caliber, which is 
through a ball three quarters of an inch in diameter. The Brown Best was kind of the AK-47 of the period. It was very robust and, and soldier-proof, hard to break. Um, it was accurate enough at short range and comparatively quick to load and fire. But uh, I think probably more warriors were armed with long rifles than is, is commonly portrayed. Um, the flintlock long rifle is the quintessential weapon of the American frontiersman of this period. But by the 1770s, it had been adopted by many Indians, too. It was slower to load than a smoothbore, but um, it was much more accurate. And uh, Ted Franklin Ballou, in his magnificent book, The Hunters of Kentucky, which uh, describes the long hunt in the 1760s and the 1770s, quotes the missionary David Zeisberger, Delawares use no other than rifle-barreled guns. So it's my belief that at least some of the warriors that were attacking the American frontier were armed with rifles, and certainly Simon Gertie, who had a reputation for his long-range shooting, was armed with a rifle-barreled gun. A single blanket rolled up and carried in a sling over the shoulder would do for bedding, and rations were dried cornmeal and perhaps some dried meat, successful raiders would plan on subsisting on, on plundered foodstuffs. So equipped in this way, a war party could move with devastating swiftness, and they'd materialize out of the forest to attack an isolated cabin, a, a small traveling party, or a small station, which is what uh, small forts, small palisaded forts were called on the, uh, on the frontier. And they'd, they'd hit with extreme kinetic violence and disappear back into the woodland before pursuit could be mobilized. And this happened over and over and constantly on the American frontier in western Pennsylvania, what's now West Virginia, and Kentucky for a period of several decades. So constant state of terror for um, most of the settlers in that region. Gertie returned from such a raid in western Pennsylvania to the Shawnee town of Wapatomica in September of 1778, and he was in for a tremendous shock. There was a white man there in the Wapatomica towns who was heavily the worse for wear, pretty badly beaten up, and it was his dear friend, his blood brother, Simon Kenton, who was still at this time known as Simon Butler. He had been captured and condemned to burn at the stake. And Gertie obviously felt that he had to do something about this. Kenton had been caught while on a horse-stealing raid on the north side of the Ohio River. Kenton was, was operating in, in Kentucky, out of the Kentucky stations, and, and had been on this horse-stealing raid across the river. And while the Ohio tribes, the Eastern Woodland tribes, were not horseback Indians like the Comanche and the Lakota and the other Plains people, like white frontiersmen, they, they still prized horses, uh, using them for transportation and for, for hauling goods. Horse stealing was kind of the sporting aspect of warfare for both the young Indian warriors and for young frontiersmen. And Kenton's sport had not ended too well for him. One of his companions had escaped by 
jumping into the Ohio and grabbing a log and kicking his way back across the river. And his other companion was killed and scalped, and, and the Indians whipped Kenton across the face with the, the bloody scalp and, and, and yelling, you, you steal Shawnee horse. And uh, Kenton then was tied on backwards on a, a horse, and the Indians sent him crashing around through the brush and the trees. And, and of course, you know, that was a pretty savage beating, and it was only the first one that Kenton would endure while well, en route to the Shawnee towns where they were going to execute him in the most painful and gruesome fashion imaginable. So Gertie was in a tough spot. He had only reestablished himself recently amongst the Indians, and he had limited influence. He'd been out on you know, maybe one operation with the Indians and had only been in their fold for six months. So he didn't have a whole lot of influence, but he turned all of his rhetorical skill loose in an effort to persuade the Shawnee to spare his friend. And it worked. The Shawnee agreed to free the man who they knew as Butler and turn him over to Gertie. But unfortunately for both of them, it was a temporary reprieve. A party of Shawnee returned from a much less successful raid than Gertie's into what is now West Virginia, and they'd suffered heavy losses. And the war captains, the leaders of this war party, were royally pissed off to see this young, white American frontiersman, who a lot of the Indians knew at this point, at least by reputation, walking free amongst them. So they had, they had no qualms about double jeopardy and anything like that. And these war captains demanded that Butler be tried again, and he was recondemned to death by fire. And Gertie knew that there was no way that he was going to talk the Shawnee out of it this time, so he played for time instead and suggested that they make a big spectacle out of burning this this well-known frontier warrior and conduct the execution in the upper Sandusky towns uh, in in northern Ohio near Lake Erie, uh, about fifteen, about 50 miles away from Wapatomica so that more people could gather to see the, the spectacle. And the, uh, the Shawnee thought that that was a, a fine idea indeed and agreed to it. So then Gertie sent word to Detroit to seek intervention from the, the British Indian Department. And ultimately, this proved to be successful. Along the route, they, they stopped briefly uh, to visit uh, with Chief Logan, who you'll remember from uh, the previous episode, who, whose family had been murdered by the Great House brothers. And uh, Logan apparently remembered Gertie and Bodler from uh, when they had taken the dictation of, of his speech after Lord Dunmore's war. And uh, he decided to help Gertie out by stalling the party for a day, insisting that, uh, that the war captains who were escorting Bottler to his execution go hunting with him. So they gained a day that way. And uh, they gained another day sort of providentially when they arrived in the upper Sandusky towns and they'd set up Kenton to burn and a rainstorm 
moved in and soaked all the wood so they, they couldn't have their, their party. So then Pierre Druyer, a French trader with the British Indian Department, showed up at the Upper Sandusky Towns, and he dressed in his full British uniform and, and told the assembled Indians that he needed to take Bodler for a while for interrogation in Detroit. And he spread around the trade goods and tobacco pretty generously to mollify the disappointed Indians. And he told them that when he was done with the frontiersmen, they could have him back and do with him whatever they wanted. Um, that was a ruse. There was never any intent to return Bodler to the, to the Indians. So the young frontiersman, was, who was just at this point just had been terribly battered, went with Drurier to Detroit, where he was paroled and given the run of the post. And uh, he was young, 23 years old, vigorous and remarkable healing powers. And he healed up for a few weeks and then ultimately would escape and return to Kentucky, where he would become one of, if not the most effective frontier partisan fighters on the border. So Simon Gertie had saved his friend's life. And this was a pattern for Gertie over his career. And despite the black legend that, that has grown up around him, he ransomed many American captives and protected a lot of them from harm. And there was one man that he could not save, and that failure blackened his reputation beyond rehabilitation, at least until recently. But we'll get into that in a little bit. On a side note, Pierre Druyer had a Shawnee wife, and their son, George Druyer, would later sign, out, sign on as a hunter with the Corps of Discovery, with Lewis and Clark Expedition, and is mentioned many, many times in glowing terms in uh, Clark and Lewis's journals. And he would become one of the early mountain men, stayed in the, in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, George Drurier would ultimately meet his doom at the hands of a Blackfoot war party in an absolutely epic fight that absolutely must make it into a podcast one day, but that's for another time. From late 1778 on, the tempo of operations for the Gertie brothers was very high, and they were almost constantly in the field. And when they weren't, Simon was acting as an interpreter at conferences with the tribes. And uh, I'll give you a little sample of the type of rhetoric that he used to rouse and rally the Indians, which is reported in Ted Franklin Ballou's Hunters of Kentucky. Brothers, the long knives have overrun your country and usurped your hunting grounds. Unless you rise in the majesty of your might and exterminate the whole race, you may bid adieu to the hunting grounds of your fathers, to the delicious flesh of the animals with which it once abounded. The brothers conducted countless operations. One of the strategic imperatives of both the British and their tribal allies was to prevent the invasion of the Ohio country and attacks on the bases at Upper Sandusky and Detroit. 
So when the Americans established a Ford operating base at Fort Lawrence in the Ohio country in preparation for an attack on the upper Sandusky towns, Simon helped to cut it off. An ambush of a wood party out of the fort killed 19 Americans, and that attack and a subsequent siege forced the Americans to abandon the fort. It's one of the most interesting archaeological uh, finds in uh, the eastern frontier, and I've done a blog post on the excavation of the graves of the 19 Americans that were killed, and uh, that can be found at FrontierPartisans.com, and I'll actually uh, paste the direct link to that, uh, that piece in the show notes. A river ambush on the Ohio in the same year, 1779, provides a really nice set-piece example of the kinds of operations that the Gertie brothers conducted through the whole American Revolution. On October 4th, 1779, uh, Simon and George Gertie and a party of about 120 Shawnee and Wyandotte warriors laid a near-perfect ambush that took the lives of about 40 American soldiers and reaped a huge score of munitions and supplies. It happened on the last leg of an epic upstream keelbolt haul conducted by Colonel David Rogers. This is an American officer who had been tasked with journeying down the Ohio and down the Mississippi to negotiate a purchase of powder and lead and supplies for the forces back at, at Fort Pitt. And, uh, you know, this was the, the, the heat of the American Revolution, and the Continental Army east of the Alleghenies couldn't spare vital military supplies for the Western defense. So it made sense, actually, to take this long trek down to, to the Spanish in New Orleans to, uh, to get these supplies. It was just a military necessity. The trip downriver wasn't bad, but in the days before steam power, if you wanted to haul up upstream, it was brutally arduous. So Rogers commanded a pair of keelboats on the journey back up the Mississippi and then back up the Ohio River toward Fort Pitt. When they had favorable wind, a keelboat crew could, could unfurl a single sail, but mostly working upstream involved rowing and gangs of men towing the boat with a cable on shore and or men pushing long poles down to the river bottom and nesting them under their armpit and walking back along the boat to propel the craft forward. Uh, it was extremely slow, hard, hard work. And in order to, to get it done, you had to hug, hug the shoreline, which of course was dangerous. So Rogers made it without any incident to uh, George Rogers Clark's outpost there at the, the Falls of the Ohio at, uh, at Louisville. And another boat joined them there with a party of armed soldiers and some civilians headed to Fort Pitt. And then the three keelboats continued on their way up the Ohio River, which was a war zone. This was where the the... Indian forces that Gertie and the Gertie brothers worked with were crossing the Ohio River to raid into western Virginia and Kentucky. So 
the keelboat's really a, a target of opportunity for, for the Gerties. They, they may have known of the expedition, but they, there was no way that they would have known the timing of their arrival. But the boats caught the attention of scouts from this large war party that the Gertie brothers had, had led across the river into Kentucky. And uh, incidentally, one of the members of the raiding party was a 12 or 13-year-old boy who was under the tutelage of his older brother, and his name was Tecumseh. So, recognizing that they had this opportunity falling into their lap, the, the Gerties and, and their allies devised a trap near the Licking River, right across from the Ohio, from uh, what's now Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. So these keelboats all in a line were working their way against the current and a lookout on one of the, the keelboats spotted a canoe out in the river. And it was overloaded with Indians and was riding low in the water. And these, you know, these soldiers and keelboat men had been on the river for, for weeks at a time and they were starved from some excitement and uh, you know, to relieve the drudgery. And so they started firing on the canoe. And the Indians panicked and, and started paddling furiously for the, the Kentucky shore. And this is where the Americans made their, their fatal mistake. And it happens over and over and over in frontier partisan warfare. It's a maxim. Don't follow the decoy. But Rogers followed them and beached the keelboat, the keelboats on a, uh, on a sandbar that was sticking out into the river. And he detailed a guard for the boats, and then he and his men chased the fleeing Indians up the, this brushy embankment where they ran into this withering fire from the rest of, of Gertie's party. And many of Rogers' men went down right at that first fire. Some tried to break back toward the keel boats, but the boats were under attack by another contingent of warriors. And so a few... Soldiers made it to the river, and the boat guard managed to get just one of the keelboats off the sandbar and out into the current. So Rogers, Colonel Rogers and his men were pinned down in this heavy brush taking intense fire, and Rogers himself was gut shot. And some, some say that, that it was Simon Gertie himself who shot him, but, shot him, but uh, that's probably legend. I, I don't think anybody really knows who shot who in this firefight. A Sergeant John Knox dragged Rogers into a ravine where they hid as the war party rubbed out the rest of their, their comrades. And then when the, the fire died off, the, the warriors gathered to the shore and looted the boats. They had lost two men killed and five wounded and had killed at least 40 long knives, as they called them, and captured five of them. Um, including an old frontier hand named Colonel John Campbell, who had embarked at, at Fort Nelson. The boats were a, a very rich haul. They carried 40 50-pound barrels of gunpowder and two tons of lead bars for running ball. So an enormous amount of, of ammunition. There were bales of clothing, a crate of rifles, a chest of silver Spanish dollars, and several kegs of rum. And... Those were immediately broached by the Indians. Um, you know, you can imagine them just like a, a pirate crew 
um, enjoying their plunder. And, uh, you know, they did, they didn't, uh, they didn't get so drunk that, that they completely lapsed in their security. They knew that they were pretty exposed on the southern shore of the Ohio and that there had been a lot of gunfire, which would probably bring other Americans to investigate. So they cut their celebration short and, and headed back across the Ohio and dispersed. And the Shawnee went to their towns, the Wyandotte to Upper Sandusky. And uh, Simon Gertie had known Campbell in earlier years. Uh, during Lord Dunmore's war and took him under his protection and turned him over to the British authorities in Detroit. Um, Rogers ultimately died, and two of the Americans who survived the the firefight in the brush uh, were wounded, and they managed to uh, get picked up by a passing traveler on the river three weeks later after a, a pretty intense survival ordeal, and they both recovered. So this kind of, of fight kind of made Gertie's reputation. It made his reputation amongst the Indians. That was for, in, in terms of, of Indian warfare, that was a tremendous victory, very light on casualties on their part, um, a lot of scalps taken, a lot of plunder taken. Um, so that kind of built his reputation with them, and it also built his very negative reputation with the Americans from whom he had defected, and they saw him as doing severe damage to the Patriot cause on the Western frontier. Despite the bounty on his head and the hatred that American frontiersmen had for him, the closest that Simon Gertie ever came to being killed during the war years was not in battle, but in a drunken altercation with one of his own, the Mohawk war captain, Joseph Brandt. And uh, it has to be noted that alcohol abuse was a besetting vice for a great many of the frontier partisans. And both Gertie and Brandt struggled with alcoholism for much of their lives, and both were apparently mean and, and quarrelsome drunks. So here's what, what went down. Joseph Brandt was, uh, as I said, a Mohawk war captain, and his, his theater of operations was usually in the Mohawk Valley of New York, um, raiding against the American settlements there, and he had, had done so very successfully. In 1781, the British uh, detailed him to go to Ohio um, and and fight there because they were very concerned that George Rogers Clark, again, the Americans' most successful commander, was planning an expedition against Detroit. So Brandt was, was called to interdict any expedition that uh, that Clark was able to get up, and uh, he did attempt to do so. Clark did attempt to create an expedition to go to Detroit, but he was having recruiting difficulties, and uh, he headed downriver to his fort there at Louisville, Fort Nelson, uh, separate from a follow-on party commanded by uh, Colonel Archibald Lockery, who was supposed to catch up to him. Again, very much like the the previous story, the Indians successfully lured them 
uh, Lockery's party on shore. It's possible that the Lockery just stopped um, for a break, um, this time along the northern shore of the Ohio River, right close to the border of present-day Ohio and Indiana. And this was on August 24, 1781. And George Gurdy and Joseph Brandt launched this ambush that killed 37 Pennsylvania militiamen, including Colonel Lockery. And the capture of the rest of this 107-man strong American force. And the, the ambushers took no casualties at all. Simon Gurdy didn't take any part in, in this action. He and Alexander McKee were rushing down to the Ohio River with reinforcements because they, they were hoping to, to destroy Clark's main expedition. And so when they finally showed up, um, Brant led a force of about 400 of these very seasoned Indian warriors and frontier partisans downriver in pursuit of Clark. But after five days of running the forest trails along the river, it was obvious that Clark had too much of a lead and would re- reach uh, safety at, uh, at Fort Nelson before the Indians and loyalists could overtake him. And besides that, Brant had captured a couple of American messengers who confirmed that uh, that with the loss of Lockery's force, Clark had already decided to abandon the campaign against Detroit. So uh, Brant's strategic aim had been achieved. So he, he called off the pursuit and uh, this force of Indians and, and British rangers and frontier partisans went into camp. And of course they broke out the rum and the whiskey to celebrate their victory. So, this is a slightly imaginative recreation of, of the scene, but it, it's accurate to the known facts. Simon Gertie, drinking with the rest of them, got fed up with listening to Joseph Brandt brag. Brandt was obviously a capable war captain and a badass frontier partisan and all that, but his drunken boasting was insufferable. You'd think that he had had conceived of this ambush and and executed it against Colonel Lockery's militia all by himself. And Simon's brother, George Gertie, was just as important and just as instrumental in this victory. And this arrogant Mohawk was trying to steal all the credit and the Gertie brothers' glory. So Simon called him out. And... uh, Simon got to his feet under this canvas tent and leaned in towards Brant and called him a damn liar and told him to, to shut up. And, you know, the tent went dead silent and everybody thought there was going to be a, a brawl. But Brant, you know, although he was clearly stung by, by Gertie's words, he, he didn't do anything. He just stood up and, and walked out of the tent. So later that uh, evening, as Gertie left the tent, Brandt accosted him, and he swung a saber and hit Gertie over the head with the sword and opened a deep gash in Gertie's skull, and Gertie just crumpled to the ground. And one account says that onlookers could see his brain beating inside his head. 
And Brent was set to saddle up and flee the camp, but uh, Alexander McKee, Gertie's boss in the British Indian Department, restrained him and told him that if Gertie died, he intended to see Brant hang. So the Mohawk sobered up the next morning and was just completely overcome with remorse. And he found Gertie where he'd been put to bed in a lean-to, and, and he was you know very clearly hovering between life and death. And and Brent held his hand and begged forgiveness and blamed his actions on the drink, which was surely true enough. I mean, none of this reflects well on Joseph Brandt's character. The bragging, the failure to confront Gertie or deal with Gertie's confronting him face-to-face, ambushing him and slashing him across the head with a saber. I mean, none of it reflects well on, on Brandt. Um, Gertie was in a really bad way, and he had suffered what what we now would call a traumatic brain injury. And he was down for the count for for quite some time, and many people thought that he he would, in fact, die. But against the odds, he slowly recovered. Uh, He was cared for by a Mingo medicine man. Um, For several months he he suffered from blurred vision and he had these just crushing headaches from from this brain injury but uh he in in 6 months or so he he would return to action he had a uh, a terrible scar on his forehead which uh, ever afterward he wore a wild rag um tied as a kerchief over his his head pirate style to to hide that scar in 1783, the two frontier partisans would meet again and, and sort of, of make amends. Uh, this was in Detroit, and uh, Brandt had come there, and according to Gertie family lore, Simon braced Brandt in his quarters and, and threw two pistols and two cutlasses on a table and, and invited him to, to settle their differences like men. And once again, Brandt made a tearful apology for his drunken assault, and Gertie accepted the apology. Um, I've studied Brandt a great deal. I don't think that Brandt was was fundamentally cowardly, um, as Gertie accused him of being. I think that his his remorse for what he did was was genuine, and. Uh, you know, Brandt in general was a man of character, um, and he probably did deserve the the credit for the for Lockery's defeat. Um, you know, he he was a a tried and skilled war captain. Um, again, it's you know unseemly that he would brag so about it, but uh, drink made a beast of the man, and uh, and I think he was genuinely sorry for it. And the two men had to put aside their differences because they were in the same business, which was working on behalf of the British Indian Department with its Indian allies to defeat and stave off the Americans. So it took Gertie about six months to fully heal from this near-fatal wounding, and by spring of 1782, he was, he was operational again. And this 
year, the year of 1782, was known on the frontier as the bloody year. It was the, the most horrific year in all of the uh, the war on the American Revolution on the, the frontier. This was the year that Gertie's black legend would amp up from just being a, a hated renegade Tory to being a, a diabolical figure, thanks to the hideous execution of Colonel William Crawford of the American Continental Army. And to get to that story, we're going to have to lay some backstory. So in the midst of all of this conflict on the Ohio River frontier, there was this colony of Delaware Indian converts to a pacifist sect called the Moravians, which came out of Germany. And they lived at... uh, a town that they had called Gnadenhutten in eastern Ohio. And they were under extreme threat all the time. They they were right in the middle of of the war party's routes towards western Virginia. And and everybody, Americans and and British and the, the western tribes, all suspected them of providing aid and comfort to the enemy. And Gertie had actually ordered the Moravians to leave the area, in part because he thought they were warning American settlements of a pending attack, which was, and which was possibly true, uh, even probably true, um, and in part also because he believed that the Americans would eventually attack them, and he was unfortunately correct about that. In March of 1782. Pennsylvania militia under the command of a Colonel David Williamson penetrated into the Ohio country and took over this peaceful village. And the militiamen, again, they were convinced that these Moravian Delawares were providing aid and comfort to the enemy that was raiding the western Pennsylvania settlements. They tomahawked and bludgeoned to death 96 men, women, and children. And it was just an absolutely horrible, cold-blooded slaughter. They lined them up in a cabin and uh, smashed a bunch of, of them in the head with a cooper's mallet. Um, it, was, it was really a truly horrific scene, a, the murder of innocent people. And it absolutely exploded the frontier afterwards. The Delaware, of course, the militants and the neutrals alike, were enraged at the killing of these innocent uh, Indians, and uh, so were all of the native peoples of the Ohio country, and and for them it was evidence that, that the Americans simply wanted to exterminate them. Gertie Interestingly, his reports to the British Indian Department were pretty matter-of-fact about this uh, event, but it seems to have, have cut him pretty deep. And Reverend John Heckwelder, who had founded this doomed colony at Nadenhuten, got an absolutely terrifying glimpse of Gertie's wrath over the whole business. Hoffman writes... Gertie knew that the missionaries had been warned several times, but had rejected every offer to move their followers to safety. 
He blamed them for what had happened, and he went to pay them a visit at Lower Sandusky, where they were still awaiting transport to Detroit. Heckwelder's journal tells what happened. Gertie did return and behaved like a madman on hearing that we were here and that our conductor had disobeyed his orders and had sent a letter to the commandant at Detroit respecting us. He flew at the Frenchman who was in the room adjoining ours, most furiously striking at him and threatening to split his head in two for disobeying the orders he had given him. He swore the most horrid oaths respecting us and continued in that way until after midnight. His oaths were all to the purport that he had never would leave the house until he had split our heads in two with his tomahawk and made our brains stick to the walls of the room in which we were. I omit the names that he called us by and the words he made use of while swearing, as also the place he would go to if he did not fulfill all which he had sworn that he would do to us. He had somewhere procured liquor and would, as we were told by those who were near him, at every drink renew his oaths, which he repeated until he fell asleep. Never before did any of us hear the like oaths, or know anybody to rave like him. He appeared like a host of evil spirits. He would sometimes come up to the bolted door between us and him, threatening to chop it in pieces to get at us. No Indian we had ever seen drunk would have been a match for him. How we should escape the clutches of this white beast in human form, no one could foresee. Yet at the proper time, relief was at hand, for on the morning at the break of day, and while he was still sleeping, two large flat-bottomed boats arrived from Detroit for the purposes of taking us to that place. So we have a picture of Gertie as a bad drunk, which we, we already knew. From my point of view, it's, it's not too hard to discern in his behavior a sense of, of guilt and moral injury and also possibly effects of a traumatic brain injury um, in the rage that he displayed. And, uh, you know, obviously there was a darkness in him and uh, alcohol fueled that. So the Gnadenhutten massacre radicalized what was left of the neutral Delaware and enraged the militants of all nations. And when the American commandant at Fort Pitt, who was Brigadier General William Irvine, authorized yet another expedition to penetrate to the upper Sandusky towns, the stage was set for a very violent confrontation. Irvine's orders are, are instructive. The object of your command is to destroy with fire and sword, if practicable, the Indian town and settlement at Sandusky, by which we hope to give ease and safety to the inhabitants of this country. But if impractical, then you will doubtless perform such other services in your power, as will, in their consequences, have a tendency to answer this great end. Should any person, British, or in the service or pay of Britain or their allies, fall into your hands, if it should prove inconvenient for you to bring them off, you will, nevertheless, take special care to liberate them on parole, in such manner as to ensure liberty for an equal number of our people in their hands. There are individuals, however who I think should be brought off at all events, should the fortune of war throw them into your hands. I mean such as have deserted to the enemy since the Declaration of Independence. That, of course, meant the Gerties. There was a large contingent of Pennsylvania militia in this expedition, again commanded by David Williamson, who had ordered the Gnadenhutten slaughter. And Colonel William Crawford, 
a Continental Army officer and, and an old friend of George Washington commanded. And this spring 1782 expedition was, was a pretty potent one, and the Indians fell back in front of it. The Americans never had an element of surprise, though, because Simon Gertie's intelligence work had nailed down the American forces' route and their objectives from the time it left its staging area on the Ohio River at a place called Mingo Bottom. Gertie and the other British Indian Department officers rallied the tribes from far and wide, and, and reinforcements poured in because every, everyone was so infuriated they wanted to crack at the Americans. Not far from the expedition's goal, Crawford's force ran into a substantial force of Indians. And also amongst the, command, uh, the combatants was, was a 100-man contingent of Butler's Rangers, which uh, was a very effective British ranger force that uh, usually operated with the Iroquois in western New York. And again, they, they had been detailed, like Brant had been the year before, to, um, to work in the western theater of the frontier war. Crawford's force probably could have pushed through and attacked the Sandusky towns, but they didn't know what they were facing. And in these menacing woodlands and marshy, mist-shrouded meadows, they, they grew very confused and very hesitant and lost the initiative. They just stalled out and uh, didn't move forward, didn't move back, and the Indians were able to surround them. It turned out that the Battle of Sandusky was a pretty desultory, long-range affair, and there weren't a whole lot of casualties. But the Americans' nerve broke, and they attempted to retreat. The retreat didn't turn into a rout, but, but they straggled badly in this kind of marshy, difficult terrain. And a number of officers and men were captured. Williamson, lucky for him, broke out with 250 men and made it back to Pennsylvania completely unscathed, and he would never, ever face any retribution for his role in the slaughter of the peaceful Moravian Delaware. Crawford would be the guy that would pay for Williamson's sins. The Delaware captured Crawford, and they beat him and condemned him to die at the stake. A friend of Crawford's named Dr. John Knight was captured along with him, and he was also condemned. He would ultimately escape and return to the American settlements with a terrible tale, and one that painted Simon Gertie as a, a frontier fiend. And that is because Crawford's death was especially horrific. Gertie actually tried to get... Crawford to an attempt to escape, um, but Crawford Crawford was, I think, 62 years old at the time, um, very demoralized and discouraged and worn out, and he just didn't have it in him to try to escape. And so Gertie tried to intercede on his behalf, as he had done many times, including with, with uh, Simon Kenton, and you know this time it wasn't going to work. The, uh, the Indians in the Delaware in particular were too angry, and uh, in later years, um, one of Gertie's descendants said that uh, that Gertie pleaded with the, the Delaware chief, Captain Pipe, 
quote, offering for his ransom all the property he was possessed of in the world. The Indians said Crawford would be saved only on the condition that Gertie take his place. And Pipe actually threatened Gertie with that. He, he got so sick of, of hearing him beg for, for Crawford's salvation that he told him to shut up or he would be burned instead or also. So Gertie was uh, unable to, to intervene to save Crawford and, uh, and Pipe, Captain Pipe whipped up the crowd and uh, um, as soon as he was done speaking, as Hoffman recounts, warriors with muskets screamed and surged around Crawford, firing powder charges into his body at close range, striking him from his feet to his neck. The gunpowder burned deep into Crawford's flesh, creating black and bloody wounds that smoked. Knight estimated that more than 70 such charges were fired. So I'm not going to go into the, into the gruesome details of Crawford's execution by burning. Um, it took two hours, and uh, he was reduced to a shambling hulk of a man. Uh, he did call out to Gertie to shoot him. And Gertie, of course, could not do that. And had he done so, Gertie probably would have been would have been killed himself. Um, such was the the rage that the Indians felt. Doctor Knight's narrative on these events, which was heavily edited by um, a lawyer named Hugh Brackenridge, who was a patriot, propagandist, and and land booster portray Simon Gertie as being coldly indifferent to Crawford's suffering and even mocking him when, when he begged Gertie to shoot him and put him out of his misery. Um, there's a quote from the narrative that, uh, in the midst of these extreme tortures, Crawford called out to Simon Gertie and begged him to shoot him, but Gertie making no answer, he called again. Gertie then, by way of derision, told the colonel he had no gun. At the same time, turning about to an Indian who was behind him, laughed heartily, and by all his gestures, seemed delighted at the horrid scene. Uh, that is the image that came down through history of Simon Gertie. And uh, it's not true. It's just certainly not true. It goes against everything in Gertie's character and behavior otherwise. And it's amply clear from other witnesses and from that circumstantial evidence of Gertie's prior and post behavior towards prisoners, generally that he did everything that he could to save Crawford and uh, who he had known as a, a friend in, in prior days. Later on, another Delaware leader named Wingenund, who had also known Crawford pre-war, listened to a lecture from British officials about the atrocity and they were shaming him for not acting to intervene to save Crawford. And uh, Heckwelder again was present to record the response and, and Wingenund said, these men talk like fools. If King George himself had been on the spot with all his ships laden with treasures, he could not have ransomed my friend. So, Truly, there was nothing that Gertie could do to save William Crawford. And, uh, but the legend that came down certainly uh, 
created the image of Simon Gertie as a frontier fiend, a devil incarnate. And that is the image that, that has lasted until really the latter part of the 20th century. So Simon Gertie would also play a very prominent role in the last pitched battle of the American Revolution. He accompanied a mixed force of Wyandots, which were sort of the people that he, he was most associated with. Mingo's Shawnee, and again Butler's Rangers on an expedition against Bryan Station in Kentucky uh, that summer of 1782. And uh, they failed to take the fort, which may or may not have been by design. They may never have intended to take the fort, um, as subsequent events might indicate. When the siege was lifted, they retreated, and a, a Kentucky relief force pursued them. And this British Indian force drew them on and on and on into some broken country around the, the Blue Licks, which was a, a series of salt licks in north-central Kentucky. And the, uh, the Kentucky relief force charged into an ambush at uh, again, almost perfectly executed ambush, and 77 Kentuckians were killed, including Daniel Boone's teenage son, Israel, in a 15-minute storm of fire. They just swept the field with, with fire and, and, uh, and killed about a third of the Kentucky force. This was a, a, another very big battle for this theater of war, and it was a huge victory for the Ohio tribes, but it had zero strategic impact because the British were winding down their war with the American rebels at this point. Yorktown had already happened, and this was the last real pitched battle of the war. In 1783, the British and the Americans agreed a peace accord in Paris that didn't mention Indians at all. On the ground along the Ohio River, though, the American Revolution didn't really end in 1783. The militant Indians continued to be determined to fight encroachment from white settlers some of whom were now pushing across the Ohio River into, uh, into their homeland territories. And they continued to make very bloody attacks on the shipping along uh, the Ohio River. That shipping increased a great deal after the end of the war, and actually the attacks amped up along with it. And that was kind of the, the bloodiest theater of war um, post-1783, for about 10 years. The British wanted to protect Canada and they wanted to continue the fur trade. So by design, they just kind of neglected to turn over Detroit and other Western posts that they were supposed to, according to the peace agreement. And the Americans were not in any position to force the issue yet. So British agents like Simon Gertie continued to kind of semi-covertly supply and support the native resistance to the expansion of this new American Republic. 
Another event that was considerably more pleasing occurred in 1783. Simon was tasked with aiding in the repatriation of American captives, which was an initiative undertaken by the British as kind of a a goodwill peace gesture, gesture of reconciliation. And during this mission, Gertie found an 18-year-old woman named Catherine Malott, who had been taken in an assault on her family's flatboat when it was traveling down the Ohio River to Kentucky. Um, Catherine was tall and dark-haired and and was regarded as an exceptional beauty. Um, Simon fell in love with her, and apparently she with him. As we've noted in in previous podcasts, uh, these large age gaps and very young brides, that was a, a common phenomenon in frontier America. And uh, they were married in 1784, and Simon was given a 164-acre allotment in Canada near Lake Erie by the British government for his services, and then they settled down there, sort of. Um, Simon and Catherine created a, a household there, and they had children. But Simon continued his Indian department work, mostly in this period working as an interpreter. Um, it was kind of a Cold War situation, and he he acted as uh, an agent of influence in that kind of Cold War scenario. And the Cold War would turn hot one more time for him in 1791 when the new U.S. Army launched an expedition to crush a native coalition that was led by the Miami chief, Little Turtle, and the Shawnee war captain, Blue Jacket. And in November of that year, the army, led by General Arthur St. Clair, trekked pretty deep into the Ohio country, approaching the Wabash River. Now, ever since the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783, British Indian Department personnel were under express orders not to engage in direct combat with American forces. So, you know, very similarly to a Cold War situation, you didn't want to create a situation where um, an accident or the killing of, of, of British or American personnel could lead to a shooting war between the two countries. But Simon disregarded these orders in this case and went into battle as a leader of the Wyandotte, with which he'd been he'd been associated with for the the past thirteen years. Hoffman writes, Wyandotte leaders had just awarded Simon one of his greatest honors, bestowing upon him full battlefield command of their warriors in the coming fight. Everyone's future depended on the outcome of the forthcoming battle, and Gertie openly disregarded standing orders from his British superiors, prohibiting him from engaging in direct combat with the Americans. More than 400 Wyandotte warriors volunteered to follow Gertie into battle. At the time, the enemy was only 75 miles away. Unlike their foes, the warriors were unencumbered by excess baggage, artillery, or camp followers. They knew what they were fighting for and had intelligence of everything they needed to know about their enemy a great victory was anticipated. And a great victory is what they got. Um, Gertie and his Wyandots took the left wing of a horseshoe ambush. The, uh, the Indians hit the American encampment, hit it hard, overran it, 
and routed the American army, which took uh, casualties including 630-some killed, which remains the greatest casualties of any encounter with native forces. The Little Bighorn in comparison, which is much more famous, uh, Custer lost his own life and, and the lives of 260 troopers. So this was a, a tremendous loss, um, and, and it's one of the worst military disasters in all of American history. But the thing is that as the uh, great historical so- storyteller and podcaster Dan Carlin is fond of, of noting, the imperial powers imperial nations like what the United States was becoming, what set them apart is that they could take a punch. It took a couple of years, but the U.S. Army was reconstituted, and President George Washington just sent it out again, and this time put it under the command of General Anthony Wayne. And his moniker, he went down in history famously as Mad Anthony Wayne, which gives the impression that he was an impetuous, impetuous uh, uh, hard charger, which he could be under the right tactical circumstances. But what characterized his campaign in 1774 against the Indians was that he was very cautious and very deliberate. He was not going to allow himself to get ambushed like his predecessors had and routed in the wilderness. So by the time he approached the Indian towns in the very northern part of Ohio, the warriors were were demoralized. They couldn't get at them, and they knew that they couldn't get at them, and that they, they knew that they were going to be forced into a pitched battle where they didn't have any advantages uh, to defend their towns and their cornfields. And uh, so when the battle finally was engaged at a place called Fallen Timbers, which was named for uh, a a stretch of woodlands that had been felled in in windstorms, Wayne routed the Indians. It wasn't that he inflicted a huge number of casualties, um, but he drove them from the field. And when these Indians fled to a nearby British fort for assistance, the gates were closed to them. And the British stood aside, including Simon Gurdy and Alexander McKee and the other Indian agents. They were literally forced to watch the battle from the sidelines and forbidden to intervene on the part of the tribes that they had worked with for most of of two decades. And the reason for this, I mean, the, the British had revolutionary France to, to worry about at this time, and they were just unwilling to risk being pulled into a shooting war with the Americans. So they just abandoned their Indian allies who were forced to sue for peace. And that was the true end of the Indian Wars in the Ohio Valley. The British and, and their Indian allies would, would get one more crack at defeating the Americans during the War of 1812 when uh, Tecumseh allied himself with the British. But uh, really the last best chance of of creating any kind of Indian or maintaining any kind of Indian buffer state in the Ohio territories ended 
with the Battle of Fallen, Fallen Timbers in 1794 and the Treaty of Fort Grenville that followed it in 1795. And those two events threw the Ohio country open to settlement. And they really ended Simon Gertie's active career. I wish that I could report that Simon Gertie's last years were spent with Catherine in peaceful retirement, but Gertie was a turbulent man, and a peaceful retirement wasn't really in the cards for him. It must have been a very bitter pill to swallow for Simon Gertie to see his whole life work destroyed in a morning's fighting in which he couldn't even raise his rifle. And I think that the loss really darkened his, his last days. He took to drinking hard and steadily. He'd always been a drinker, but he became an everyday drinker. Uh, when American troops kind of finally came in to occupy Detroit, he was actually drinking in a tavern in the city and barely escaped arrest. He jumped his horse into the Detroit River and swam it across to, to Canada and uh, the rest of his life was kind of a litany of, of drunkenness and ill health. He gradually went blind. Uh, people speculate that that was in part due to the head wound that, that Joseph Brandt inflicted upon him with his, his sword. That may be true. Um, there's also some belief that it might have been the result of cataracts. Uh, he broke his leg and was forced to hobble around with a cane. And Catherine uh, finally left him for a period of several years due to what she referred to as his drunkenness and unkindness. And he was forced to flee from his home when Americans invaded Canada during the War of 1812, and uh, he sojourned with the Mohawk, ironically, on lands that Joseph Brandt had secured for them in Ontario, Canada, after the Revolution. And then he returned to his, his small estate there, uh, not far from Detroit and Lake Erie, uh, after the war. Catherine came home to be with him during his final days, and he slipped away and died in 1818 at the age of 77. So that is... The tragic tale of, of Simon Gertie, I said at the beginning that, that I consider his life one of the most remarkable of American lives, and I do. Um, I don't think that you could find one that, that has more drama and more pathos and more tragedy in it than his. It's hard to unreservedly admire the man or, or to consider him a hero as his biographer, Philip Hoffman, seems to. He was a difficult personality, and there was a darkness in him. It's easy to understand how that darkness could overtake him. Um, he certainly had more than his share of trauma in his life. And uh, given his experiences, he almost certainly suffered from what we nowadays would understand and diagnose as PTSD, um, the traumatic brain injury that he suffered at Joseph Brandt's hands couldn't have, have done him any good. 
uh, there are reasons for for the darkness that uh, that kind of enveloped him, especially in the last years of his life. Um, but I don't think that you have to decide whether you you love him or hate him. I think that you can look at at Simon Gurdy as a remarkable product of his times, and uh, and recognize that that he was a highly capable man very ardent hearted in his pursuit of what he believed to be the right. Uh, he worked as a faithful agent of the British Indian department for years. And I think truly tried to reconcile and sync up the, the strategic aims and the needs and desires of both the British crown and the native people's, whom he genuinely loved and respected. So again, it's just a, a truly remarkable life, and it's worth delving into further. I do recommend Hoffman's biography very highly. It's the only reliable biography of Simon Gurdy, and it's very, very heavily based in in primary sources. And I think that that all of the the assessments and judgments that Hoffman makes are solid. If uh, you're interested in a dramatic narrative account of this era, I cannot uh, let this opportunity pass by to recommend Alan W. Eckert's book, The Frontiersman, which is focused most heavily on the life of Simon Kenton. That was a life-changing, life-shaping book for me, and it's uh, it's truly a, an outstanding narrative um, of the Ohio Valley frontier. Uh, Its companion volume, That Dark and Bloody River, is also well worth the read. Ted Franklin Bellew's book, The Hunters of Kentucky, is probably the the best glimpse that you can get of the the culture of the long hunters and the American frontiersmen and uh, in Kentucky in this era. And uh, I recommend his work very, very highly as well. And uh, I will put links to a couple of uh, Frontier Partisans blog posts into the show notes so that uh, those are available for further perusal. And if you are so inclined to support the work of Frontier Partisans, you may do so at our Patreon page. All of your support and your listening is greatly appreciated. And we'll see you down the trail.